Thank you for that beautiful arrangement um, and the little uh, teaching lesson with it. And uh, it makes sense that it would be, would you say, the number one widely known hymn? Uh, because that's something that we sing to our daughters, you know. Uh, so that's, re- that's really neat. Uh, so thank you for that. Well, it's good to be back here uh, this, this weekend. Uh, last weekend, uh, our family was out of town in the, in the Chicago and northern Indiana area. I have family back there, and my brother lives in Chicago, and then my mom and dad live in northern Indiana. And uh, so we had a great time visiting family back there. My parents have bought uh, a new home, and this is actually, in Indiana, this is actually the town that I grew up in as a child. So I spent the first nine years of my life in small town Indiana, and my parents bought a new house there. They've got a canal that runs through the backyard and, and empties out into a, a lake that you can do boating and all kinds of stuff on that. Um, and in the canal, there's a lot of fish. And so <clears throat> my girls got to practice fishing and try fishing for the first time. And my daughter, Hannah, who's, who's four and a half now, she caught her first fish. And she was very excited about catching her first fish. And... But the funny thing was, is she's really excited once that fish gets on the line. But once you get the fish out of the water, her face contorted in all kinds of different directions. And she was squealing, and um, it, it was a lot of fun. But, you know, I was helping her fish, and her, her grandpa, or her pappy, as, as she calls him, was, was, was helping her fish. And then little Emma was doing it, too, so we had a, a really good time there. Um, but it's good to be back today and being with you all. Um, Well, the last time I was up here, I was up here for our VBS play. Um, I was asked to be in the play, not knowing what part I'd get or anything like that, and I just said yes (laughs) to to being asked to be in the play, and I'm glad I said yes. It was was a lot of fun. I played this character named uh, Ralphie, and I wasn't Ralphie from the movie A A Christmas Story, if you've ever seen that before. my character was Ralphie from our VBS drama, and it w- involved going to the Arctic. That was our theme, Operation Arctic. And so I w- played the role of this lost, uh, I played the role of a, a treasure hunter, and we were seeking out lost treasure in the Arctic. And I had a couple other characters I was doing that with. Uh, I had a brother named Rico uh, that was up here with me in the play. My wife played the boss. And a lot of people want to tell me that my wife is still the boss, that, you know, art is imitating life, you know, in, in that play. And so we had some fun with that. But um, so Ralphie was a treasure, honey, treasure hunter seeking out gold that had been lost that was under a cabin in the Arctic. And so part of the play is we're on this journey looking for lost gold, lost treasure. And part of that journey is, is that my character finds a Bible one day and opens the Bible and, and, and finds some wisdom in the Bible. And the wisdom that Ralphie finds in, in Proverbs is how much better to get wisdom than, than gold. And so the play progresses and um, they, they come across a treasure box. They pull out the treasure box. They open it. They don't find any treasure. The treasure instead is a bunch of Bibles. And, of course, you know, the treasure hunters have a little disappointment. Um, but it doesn't change the, the reality of Ralphie's wisdom and what he found. 
in, in God's word and the treasure in God's word. Um, because he realized that, you know, the wisdom of God is far better than any material possession that we could have. He realized that what God gives us and offers us is worth far more than any material possession. And that is a great truth that we need to know about Jesus and, and, and God. And so today on your bulletins, you have the title of our sermon series that we've been continually putting on there. We're still in the Gospel of Luke. And the, sermon, or the series title is Luke, Knowing the Truth About Jesus. And so there's, there's great truth that we need to know about Jesus very early on, very early on in Luke's gospel. And it's found in the angel's announcement to the shepherds. You know, it's, this passage I'm about to read is very familiar to you. You've heard it at Christmas time. I'm not a Christmas in July kind of guy. That's not my motivation for reading it this morning. Uh, I'll get to that in a second. But it's the famous passage of the, of the angel making the announcement to the shepherds that a Savior has been born. And that's, that's found in Luke 2, 10 to 14. And here's what it says. It says, The angel of the Lord said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. We're going to hear that word all a lot today in a variety of, of contexts. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So in those verses are great truths that Jesus wants or, or that Luke wants us to know about Jesus. And the angel of the Lord appears to the shepherds and proclaims good news of great joy that will be for all people. And this good news is that a savior is born, Christ the Lord. And because, of, and because of that, a multitude of angels then appear to the shepherds, proclaiming praise to God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So I, I share that passage because the truth in that passage provides a wonderful preview for the parable we'll be looking at today. And I, I think that that passage kind of illustrates the whole big picture that Luke is trying to present in his gospel. And, and so today we're going to be looking at the parable of the lost coin in Luke's gospel. And what I hope that you're going to understand today is that the parable of the lost coin is a lot like the angel's announcement to the shepherds. And that the parable of the lost coin, it's a message of joy. It's a message of joy that is for all people. It's a message of joy that's for all people because of what Christ has done for you. And because of what Christ has done for you, his angels celebrate in God's saving work. So, if you have your, your Bibles with you, would you please open them to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. And uh, we're going to spend some time on these first, ter 
first two verses of Luke chapter 15. Be, and the reason for that is because we, get, we need to start there before going to the parable of the lost coin because the first two verses of this chapter are telling us who Jesus is talking to. And it's really important that we understand who he's talking to and why he's saying the things he's about to say to these groups of people. So Luke 15, look on at Luke 15. We're going to read those first two verses. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes, they're, they're grumbling. They grumble and say, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. So that's Luke 15, 1 and 2. So right there in the opening, Luke is telling us about four different groups of people that Jesus is going to address. You have tax collectors, you have sinners, you have Pharisees, and you have the scribes. But interestingly, notice how, how Luke divides the four groups of people. He puts, them, he puts tax collectors and sinners together in one verse, in verse 1, and then he puts the scribes and the Pharisees in the next verse, in verse 2. So why? Why would he do that? Is there a point that he's trying to make? Because I think he probably could have arranged it maybe a couple different ways. What, what's going on there? Is there a point he's trying to make? And I believe that there is. First, I want to start with the tax collectors. The tax collectors, they had the responsibility of, collect, of collecting taxes for Rome. They worked directly for Rome. And, and these tax collectors were the non-religious Jewish leaders. And then they had some representatives that would then work for them. And they would, you know, go around directly collecting taxes for the Roman Empire. And so there was a census tax that they would take on the people um, and, and collect. And that's obviously a part of the Christmas story as well. And then you had another group of those tax collectors working for Rome who would do a land tax and collect taxes on all the land that, that people owned because obviously Rome was overseeing that particular part of the world at that time. And um, then you had, an, but those tax collectors were really looked upon with disdain. I mean, the, 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 the other Jews in, the, in their communities couldn't stand these tax collectors because they were seen as being in collusion with the Roman Empire and helping them financially benefit a pagan government. So that would have been just treasonous to their way of life and the, and the Jewish culture and, and religion. And so then you had tax collectors who were tax farmers. And tax farmers were regulated to, a, to some degree, but the difference with them is they're, they're living off of commission. And they had the power to tax the goods that were going to be sold at market. So whoever needs to sell their goods at market... This tax farmer comes along and says, well, I think the value of the goods is this price, and that's the way it is, and I get a certain commission off that. So you can see how easy it would be for them to act dishonestly to benefit themselves. So tax collectors as a group were seen as unrighteous. They were seen as unrighteous people because either of their relationship with Rome or because of the way they, or because of the way they made their living, which was very dishonest. And so that's one unrighteous group, the tax collectors. The other unrighteous group is the sinners. And it's not really difficult to comprehend who the sinners are. It's the people who are far from God. It's, it's the people who know, hey, I've really messed up. 
I've messed up probably more than my fair share, you know? It's the, it's the people who are horrible at keeping God's law. It's the people who the Pharisees and scribes thought were not deserving of God's grace because they had screwed up so much. Now, interestingly, Luke uses the term sinners more than any other gospel writer. And I think that that's important because I think it has something to do with the fact that he wants to remind us that the gospel is something that is great news, um, that, is, that is to be great joy for all people, right? The gospel is something that is great joy for all people, including sinners. And a minute ago, I asked why Luke would group the tax collectors and sinners together. What is his point in doing that? And the point, the reason for doing that is to show that the tax collectors and sinners, they're making up the unrighteous group. And the tax collectors and sinners were the unrighteous group of their society. But according to who? Who defines the terms of who's righteous and unrighteous? Well, the Pharisees and the scribes were the ones who defined the unrighteous and the righteous. The Pharisees, being the religious leaders of the Jews, And if one was ever hoping to become a Pharisee, they would have had to have very strict adherence to their law. And remember, Paul, the Apostle Paul, was a very proud and self-proclaimed Pharisee. And he wrote about that in Philippians 3, 5 to 6. And this is what he said about himself before he became a Christ follower. He said that he was circumcised on the eighth day. He was of the people of Israel, from the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, he was blameless. He's blameless. So Paul, he gives us a personal example of what it meant to be a really good Pharisee. And Paul would have been at the very top of Jewish society. Now, another example of what it meant to be a Pharisee comes from the Jewish historian Josephus. And he wrote that the Pharisees were a body of Jews who professed to be more religious than the rest and to explain the laws more precisely. I hope you can hear the arrogance that Josephus paints the Pharisees with. You see, the Pharisees, they were considered righteous because in their eyes and in others' eyes, they upheld and explained God's laws better than anybody else. Now, Luke also includes the scribes with the Pharisees. And this makes sense because the the scribes were aligned with the Pharisees. The scribe got used to making copies of the Old Testament They're familiar with the language. They're familiar with the stories and and everything. So that would have then given them opportunity to be considered experts and teachers and uphold the traditions to make applications of the law. So they were very similar to the Pharisees. So we have the tax collectors and we have sinners making up an unrighteous group. And then we have the Pharisees and scribes making up a righteous group. And so both of these groups... The righteous and the unrighteous are there in Jesus' presence. They're gathered around him. And, of course, the great irony here 
is, that, is, is how Luke arranges the groups. Because he's basically telling us that the scribes and the Pharisees, they do not see themselves as sinners. And who does the Bible say are sinners? Who has sinned against God? It's, it's all of us. Isaiah 53.6 says this. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. Or Isaiah 64.6. All of us. There's that word again. All. All of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Or how about Romans 3.23? For all, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So, now generally I find that there's four responses that people have to the topic of sin. I think they tend to deal with it in four different ways. And maybe you've experienced some ways or categories that I might not have listed um, but one way I think people handle sin is they just deny that they're a sinner. They just say something to the effect of, well, I'm not a sinner. I'm a really good person. I'm not as bad as, like, the really bad people. I'm, a real, I'm just, I'm good. I'm good. And I think that that's how the Pharisees see themselves, and that's the category I would put them in. They just do not see themselves as a sinner. They're upholding the law. They're blameless in the eyes of others. But then you have another uh, tendency that you might find in some people is some people might admit that they're a sinner, but they just do not care that they're a sinner. You ever met anybody like that? I had a coworker of mine at, at Starbucks when I used to make coffee and make people's frappuccinos and, and all of that stuff. Um, anyway, this coworker of mine just, you know, said... I know I, I'm, I'm going to hell, and I just don't care. I know where I stand, and, and I just don't care. And I remember just thinking that was really sad, and he just had really no desire to, to think otherwise for some reason. So, um, and then you have a third group that knows they're a sinner, but they think that they can earn their way to heaven by following some sort of false religion. And lastly, there's the kind of people who, who recognize they're a sinner and they know that they can't save themselves. They're, they just know, man, I've done so much. I don't know what to do. I, I can't. I'm a mess. And they have this moment of surrender and they come humbly to Jesus. So of those four responses to sin, the Pharisees and scribes fall into the denying category. Uh, even though God knows that we've all broken his laws. God knows we've broken his laws, and he also tells us that we've broken his laws. The Pharisees and scribes think they're doing just fine. Okay? So, we've identified the audience who Jesus is going to be addressing. Now let's look at the mood of the audience. And if you look down at those verses, in verses 1 and 2 of Luke 15, Luke, Luke, verse one, or Luke 15 verse 1 says that the tax collectors... And sinners, they're all drawing near to Jesus. They're drawing near. That is their posture. They're very curious, right, to, to hear more about what Jesus is going to say. Perhaps they've seen Jesus perform a miracle. They, 
They've maybe heard about them, and now they're hearing them for the first time, or maybe they've heard them before. But they know enough, you know, to be leaning in. They're paying attention. They're very curious. And that's exactly what we do, right? When, when we're really giving our attention to somebody else, when we want to hear more, when we're really engaged, and we think we might hear something important, we're, we're leaning in, right? And then you have the posture of the, you know, the scribes and the Pharisees. And, and it tells us that, that they are grumbling. They're found to be grumbling. And, and why is that? Well, because Jesus is receiving sinners and he's eating with them. He's breaking their whole categories about sin. So they look upon Jesus with disdain because basically he's not like them. And the word Pharisee means to separate. And I really think that Jesus, or I really think that they wanted Jesus to do the same as them. They wanted Jesus to separate himself, to separate himself from the sinners. But the Pharisees and scribes, they completely miss it. They miss the heart of God, and they miss the mission of Jesus. See, the Pharisees and scribes thought that if they achieve the law, if they earn, then they'll receive grace. Then they'll receive God's favor. So they thought God's grace came as a result of their good works. And of course, this is the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches and what Jesus taught. You see, grace and receiving God's righteousness, it's something that's given to us by God. We don't earn it. And we must see ourselves as lost people in need of a Savior. And when we see ourselves as hopelessly lost and we see God's grace extended to us, that we can't earn our way to heaven, and that Jesus is the one who restores us into right relationship with God. Man, there is celebration that takes place in heaven. And that is the message that Jesus communicates to the Pharisees in the rest of the chapter. And he's going to do that in the form of three parables, what I like to call a parabolic sandwich. And I call it a parabolic sandwich, might sound kind of funny, is because it's, it's layered. There's three layers. You, you have the first one, which is the parable about uh, the good shepherd. Then you have the, 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 the parable we're going to look at in the middle, which is the parable of the lost coin. And then it concludes with the parable of the prodigal son. And the purpose of the parables is, is to illustrate truths about God's kingdom. The purpose of parables is to illustrate truths about God's kingdom. And the truths illustrated here about God's kingdom in these parables of, of this chapter are essentially the same. The parables tell us that there is rejoicing and joy and celebration of the lost becoming found. In the parable of the lost sheep, here's what the shepherd says. The good shepherd, he says, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. And then the, the woman in the parable of the lost coin says this, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. And then in the parable of the prodigal son, the farmer says, or excuse me, not the farmer, the father, maybe he was a farmer. The father says this, For this my son was dead, and he's alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. So the truths 
contained in these parables about the kingdom of God is that there is rejoicing, there's celebration, and there is joy over the lost becoming found. So let's look at the parable of the woman and the lost coin. If you look down at Luke 15, 8 to 10, look down a few verses, Luke 15, 8 to 10. Jesus is talking to our audience, and he says, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So again, this parable is the second of three parables that Jesus gives to the tax collectors, sinners, Pharisees, and scribes. And he uses a woman as the main character in this parable. And the woman is most likely poor. We know that because of the possessions she has. The ten silver coins that she had around her neck most likely are a dowry that was given to her by her father for when she got married. And so if her marriage was ever to dissolve, that's all the financial security she has. And each coin on, on there, uh, it's a drachma coin, and that's about in value the equivalent of a Roman denarius, which broke down to about a day's, a day's worth of work, the wage for a day's worth of work. So that coin was worth about a day's wage. So she's got 10 of them, so you can see that that's really not a very large security blanket. And losing just one of those would be pretty critical to her everyday survival. And so, in sh- so she came from a poor background, and she likely is marrying into a poor family because this is all she has. And so the other thing that tells us that she's most likely poor is the home that she lives in. You know, homes for common people like hers were small, they were, they were dark, they had dirt floors with, with rough stone that was built into those floors, which would have created some crevices. And because it's dark in there, because not a lot of light comes through the windows, the windows would have had, you know, small openings to prevent theft, keep out burglars, but also for insulation uh, purposes. So there was not a lot of light. And then um, you have the way the floor is arranged with the stones creating crevices, that just would be very difficult to find a, a, a little coin like the drachma coin in an environment like that, in a house that's dark, and then you've got the crevices. So that would be kind of a challenge if you were to lose that. So, you know, in the midst of the house having poor light and there being dirt crevices around the stone, so what does a woman do? She lights a lamp and she gets a broom to sweep the house. And the text says that she seeks diligently. In other words, she works really hard to go and find this coin. And she does a thorough and complete job in order to get back what was lost. And what's the result of her search? It says that there's three. That the coin is found, an invitation is made to her friends and neighbors, and then there's celebration. The text says rejoicing because of the lost coin becoming found. And what's the main point that that Jesus is making here? It's it's really not hard to miss. 
He says there is joy, that there's celebration in heaven when just one sinner repents. And just as people are going to be excited about finding their own lost material possession, I think we've all probably lost something valuable to us. The angels in heaven are rejoicing over lost souls being made right with God. And a few minutes ago, I said that the, par- that the purpose of the parables is to illustrate truths about God's kingdom. And so what truth does the woman illustrate about the kingdom of God? Well, what the woman illustrates about the kingdom of God is that God values lost people. Of all things that God created, people are God's most prized possession. They're his most prized possession. And it's not until God finished making man and woman in the Genesis account on day six that he calls his creation very good. Genesis 1.31. Everything up until that, you, you go and you look at all the other days, everything is just good. But when he makes man and woman, now everything is considered very good. But then Adam and Eve, they break God's law very quickly. In the next couple chapters of that, book. They break it very quickly, falling into temptation and and sin in the Garden of Eden. And as a result of the sin, God pronounces consequences for them, but he also promises to bring a redeemer. He promises to bring a savior who had the power to destroy sin, who has the power to destroy the evil one, and to bring people into right relationship with God. And that promised one is Jesus Christ. And so just as the woman took a lamp, and shined it all over the dark places of her house, the Bible consistently refers to Jesus' salvation as light. Just as natural light penetrates darkness, so does the light of God penetrate the dark places of our hearts. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, it says this about Jesus. It says, In him, in Jesus, was life. And he was the life, and, and, and the life, meaning Jesus, was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You see, Jesus, he's the only one. He is the only one who's offered to die for your sin on your behalf. Every other world religion just tells you to, to try harder, that you haven't done enough. But, but Jesus says, I've done enough. I've done enough for you. Trust in me. You know, about a month ago, we had uh, David Pope up here with a friend of his from West Africa, from the country of Burkina Faso. I, you hopefully remember him. His name was Adama. And uh, if you remember, Adama is most likely the first uh, Christian of his people group from that particular part of the, of the world. And he grew up Muslim. He was from a, a peaceful sect of the Islamic religion. But his ancestors had, had been Muslim for about a thousand years. And so to make a long story short, I don't know if you remember, but somebody uh, gave Adama an English gospel of John. And Adama had had enough training growing up from his schooling to, to learn enough English that he could then read that Gospel of John. And in, uh, 
One of the things that stuck out to me from that story that he told was he could immediately tell the difference between Jesus' claims and how they were completely different from, from Islam. He noticed that Jesus offered grace. While Islam couldn't promise him any assurance of salvation, he said that he never knew how many animal sacrifices he would have to make to please Allah. Again, that goes back to the, the concept of trying to earn your way and really not knowing if you've earned enough. So you see, Jesus' light, it came to Adama. And Adama is a completely changed man. He follows Jesus now. And Jesus' light came to Adama. So Jesus' light, it goes to the farthest parts of the world, to regions where there is great darkness. But Jesus' light also shines on our darkness and removes the darkness inside of us. And Jesus isn't looking for his light to just shine in church buildings on Sunday, but he wants to bring it and shine it in the darkest places of the world. And like the woman, God goes out diligently. He goes out diligently seeking lost people who are far from him. And really, the woman's diligence in searching for the lost coin, it really is reflective of the heart of God. It reflects God's passionate pursuit of us. Now, if you think about the coin for a second, once the coin becomes lost, there's no physical way it can get back to its owner, right? Once it's lost, it's lost. In our house, we have a very kind of silly expression for whenever we lose something in the house or we can't find something. If my wife or I are looking for something and our daughter sees us kind of like looking around the house, where'd that go? Do you remember where that is? I can't find it. My daughter Hannah might say something to the effect of, well, maybe it grew legs and walked away. And of course, that doesn't happen, right? Things can't just get up and walk away. Our possessions can't, can't do that. And that's exactly the place that this coin is in. It's stuck in the place that it's in until its owner recovers it. The owner has to see the value in pursuing what is lost. And so the coin can't bring itself back to its owner. The owner has to go and pursue it. And, and the coin being found, it's totally dependent on the owner taking the initiative to go find it. And so what I'm describing here is exactly what God has done for us. He has taken the initiative to reach out, to diligently go, to diligently go and search out lost souls who can never make their way back to him on their own. And the important thing is that when what is lost becomes found, there is celebration. See, the woman's village, it, they're invited to celebrate the lost coin becoming found. And scripture records here and elsewhere, God and his angels, they celebrate and rejoice over the redemption of sinners of lost souls who are found by God. But why? Why is there rejoicing and celebration in heaven over even just one sinner who repents? And the reason is because that when a person sees themselves as a sinner and repents to God for their sin, in other words, they turn away from their sinful lifestyle and they start going in a different direction. When they do that and they place their trust in Jesus' work on the cross for the forgiveness of their sin, 
God then declares that person in right standing with him. And then those people can have peace with God. And they escape his eternal wrath on the day when all of us have to stand before God to give an account for our lives. And so there's rejoicing over restored fellowship. There's rejoicing over restored fellowship with God that is certainly more valuable than rejoicing over the temporal loss of a coin. And that's what Jesus is trying to tell his audience. How much more valuable are lost souls here and my possession of people than the material things? If you like the material that much, how much greater is this? So God, the king of his kingdom, has requirements, though, for how to get into his kingdom. And the requirements for how to enter the kingdom of God starts with faith in the work of his son Jesus and repenting from sin. But once you become a part of the kingdom, God then has requirements that he wants his servants to be about. God wants his servants to reflect the heart of the king. And doesn't a good leader of any organization want their followers to be good followers and to carry out the values of the organization. Well, just that's this just the same way as it is with God's kingdom. So why did Jesus come into the world? In, in Jesus' own words found in Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So just as Jesus values, uh, or yeah, just as Jesus values people who are far from God, we are to value people far from God. We are to seek them out, to present the message of the gospel to them. And that's part of our roles as disciples. We're to value what Jesus values to have the heart of the king. We do not want to have attitudes like the Pharisees who basically just grumbled about Jesus' ministry strategy of pursuing lost people. We don't want to have attitudes like the Pharisees who basically just wanted people to try harder to be good people, just try harder, rather than offering them the grace of God. And so I'm not trying to draw an equivalency between Pharisees and Christians because we as, as Christians embrace the message of Jesus while the Pharisees and scribes, they, they rejected Jesus' message. But what I am saying is that sometimes, albeit accidentally, sometimes we can develop an attitude like the Pharisees over time. I mean, if you think about it from the Old Testament, Jonah was a really good Pharisee. He was called by God to go to the people of Nineveh. And the people of Nineveh were really bad people. They were very, very evil. Okay? And, but God wanted to extend mercy and grace to them. But Jonah said, no way. They're not, they're not deserving of your grace. They're not deserving of your mercy. And of course, Jonah eventually uh, repented of that attitude and delivered God's message to the Ninevites, and God brought his grace, he brought his mercy before his judgment. And so maybe some of us need to pray about where our hearts are at towards lost people. We might need to pray that God gives us a renewed heart for lost people. You know, a couple weeks ago here at, at VBS, uh, maybe Pastor Mike mentioned this a few weeks ago in, in this service, but there was a, a little boy uh, who was involved in the, in the teaching time. He was from our neighborhood around here. And he kind of had one of these moments during the teaching time where he just had to do, like, time out. I don't understand a thing about what you're talking about. Who is God? I've never 
heard of God before, and I don't know anything about what he's like and how I'm to respond and, and all that. And in case you don't know, that's becoming more of the norm in what's called our post-Christian culture. And I came across a, an article recently that said this. It said nearly half, about 48% of millennials between the ages of 18 to 28 qualify as post-Christian. And what that means is they do not participate in activities such as believing in God, attending church, or reading the Bible. But then you have people in Generation, generation X, my generation, where about 40% qualify as being in post-Christian category. So, friends, we can and should go to the farthest places of the world with, with the gospel, but we can and should go right here. We have examples and evidence of it with, right here within our own community. Now, if you're here today and, and you've never put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, that's something that you can do today. If, if you're tired of trying to earn your way to heaven or you feel you've done too many wrong things in your life to get to heaven, today is an opportunity for you to say yes to Jesus. You see, Jesus never says that, that you need to get cleaned up and get better before you come to him. You come as you are. And to think that you have to get better and cleaned up before coming to him, that's just, that's just a lie. And there's a song by a singer-songwriter, uh, John Mayer. I don't know if you know who he is. He's a contemporary uh, secular performer. But he's got a song called In, In the Blood. And it expresses this kind of, of thinking on the nature of redemptive, on, on the nature of redemptive love. And this is what he says. He says, I can feel the love I want. I can feel the love I need. But it's never going to come the way I am. Could I change it if I wanted? Could I rise above the flood? Will it wash out in the water? Or is it always in the blood? See, Jesus seeks you out and says, I've come to save you from your sins. And Jesus says, he's the one that fills you with the love that you need and the love that you want. You don't have to get better first to follow him. He wants to know if you'll trust in him and turn from how you've been living and follow him. And that reward that he offers for that decision is eternal life with him. And if that's something that you want to do today, you just simply acknowledge who Jesus is, that he paid the price for your sin, that he lives today, and that you want to turn and, and walk in a different direction and follow Jesus. And that's something that you can come and talk to me or Pastor Mike about, talk to the friend that brought you or one of our elders. We can call someone, but let someone know about that. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much uh, just for who you are and that you are a God of grace, that you're a God of mercy, and that um, you desire that you desire us. And you went very, very far to bring us back into right relationship with you, even at the cost of your, your son, Jesus. And Lord, we are just thankful for um, just the power of the, of the gospel and how your wisdom is so much higher than, than our wisdom. And thank you for um, 
Thank you for saving us and offering that to us. And if there's anybody here today that um, is on the fence about that or is, is curious to learn more, I just pray that they would um, just step in faith and, and begin to ask and, and seek that out. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.